I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist, based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. As regular listeners will know, in our podcast we bring you seasonal advice and tips from RHS experts throughout the gardening year. Coming up in this spring edition, we visit the RHS Community Allotment Project. We find out how RHS experts are helping develop a network of grow-your-own expertise to help increase the numbers of people growing their own fruit and vegetables across the UK. RHS advisors answer some of your spring gardening questions and, as always, the latest news on RHS gardening events across the UK. But first, let's hear about some of the key jobs you can be tackling in your garden this May. Hello there, my name is Douglas Mackay. I'm part of the propagation team at RHS Garden Wisley. And we're here to talk about things going on in May. Well, as you might be able to hear, uh, we've got the rotavator going on in the background. Um, our next bedding display is about to go in, so we're just tidying up ready for that. Um, but the garden's are looking lovely this time of year. Battleston Hill um, with all the rhododendrons and the azaleas are looking lovely. Um, all that spring fragrant flowers are all out and the birds are singing and it's lovely weather. In propagation, we're just finishing the tail end of our seed sowing. The last of our things like melons and squashes and that for the vegetable garden we're just sowing now. But probably the most important thing at the moment is that the weather's really getting much hotter at the moment. A lot of the things you've probably got in your greenhouse at the moment, we can start moving those outside. They'll be absolutely fine, so everything's going to be perfectly safe and it'll give you more space for next round of cuttings, softwood cuttings, seed sowing that you want to do come the, uh, come the summer. It's a good idea to keep an eye on pricking out in your glasshouse. Things at this time of year when there's so many other things going on outside and you want to plant things and digging, things like seed sowing gets missed because it's surprising how quickly you can something out well it's after you, you've sown your seed and it's all coming up and you've got those kind of cotyledons appearing and you've just starting to see those two true leaves coming through as well so your cotyledons see your seed leaves so they'll come up first and they're designed to give the rest of the plant as much energy and light from the initial burst just to get its roots established the initial burst of energy um, and then it will start producing its actual leaves the leaves that it will stay with for the rest of its life and they'll look more like the actual plant whereas the seed leaves just tend to be kind of just round and rather rather boring looking really um, but you don't want the seedlings to get too big as soon as you can handle them really is the best time as soon as you can just tease them out of the tray gently um, prise them apart something like a pea stick or a dibber works really well at getting away from the roots um, and then into something not too big maybe something like a nine centimeter pot is probably the biggest you want to be putting something into um, because it doesn't need too much compost around it until it's got rooted a bit more and um, it helps with things like damping off 
um, especially when you're picking out things like cauliflowers, um, you can bury them as deep as you like. Um, really, you only want just the top of the leaves um, appearing. So you've got all that stem in between. Often it has quite a leggy stem um, before the leaves um, form apart. So get that up to there. And then when you're watering and things, it's not likely to fall over um, and just sit and rot on the compost. Uh, damping off is a disease that especially young seedlings get. Um, it's caused by a fungal organism um, called pythium. And it's something you can't really treat against, but the best way, means of our defence is just good hygiene, clean trays. Um, it's just keeping everything as sterile as possible. So you're not introducing things, so not um, putting things like seedlings into garden soil, for example. Use a nice clean compost or, um, or other growing media, and then you haven't got that extra battle of all those pathogens, because larger plants can handle that kind of medley of bacteria you get in the soil, but uh, young seedlings won't. Um, but also just keeping good airflow around the greenhouse, keeping it vented during the day to keep that airflow moving in and out the greenhouse, stopping that kind of humid, muggy atmosphere that you can sometimes get, especially in warmer weather like this. And be careful with the watering. If you overwater, often um, the seedling tends to just get suffocated and there's not as much oxygen in the compost. Um, and that's when things like other diseases like pythium are more likely to come in. Remember, you can find more information on all aspects of gardening techniques on the advice pages of the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk slash advice. I'm Guy Barter and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, spring is one of the busiest times in the advisory centre, as the phone line's email inbox and our traditional post bag are all filled with inquiries about gardening problems. On this podcast each month, members of the RHS Gardening Advice Team are here to tackle some of the queries they've received recently. Members of the RHS can get advice on any gardening problem for free all through the year from our expert team. Questions can be submitted by phone, post or email or in person at any of our RHS flower shows. So let's join my colleagues as they try to answer some inquiries they've received recently. I'm Jenny Bowden and I'm one of the horticultural advisors. My name's Anna Platoni and I'm an entomologist. My name's Rob Sterling and I'm one of the advisors. And M. Page from London has written in and uh, says, For the last three years I've tried growing rainbow chard. In small pots of compost and straight into the ground, but I've had no success and nothing at all. What might I be doing wrong and what's a fail-safe method for growing this gorgeous vegetable? I grow a lot of vegetables in in small modules or pots or cell cell trays um, because then I can keep an eye on them and water them carefully, get them to a decent size before putting them out into the garden. And I know I've got full rows then as well, so I don't get any gaps. Well, hopefully if the slugs and snails don't get to them after I've put them in. But um, I usually start them off in March, the chard. Late March would be fine. That's about the earliest you can do it. You can put them in the, in a greenhouse or uh, in, a, in a very cool porch, something like that, in multi-purpose compost. And um, really, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be any, uh, any major problems with it. Just keep them well watered. You can sow direct, but they are very vulnerable to, uh, to slug and snail attack. Um, Guy, can you think of any ideas why uh, uh, this person might be having a few problems getting them going? Well, it's very odd because rainbow chard seed is usually pretty reliable. But a few ideas that may be worth looking into. Um, one is it may be sowing too early and the seeds are too cold. 
um, they're very hardy but they won't um, they won't do very well if sown um, before April really uh, but again you can sow some in July to overwinter and for autumn use uh, when the soil should be plenty warm it's possible that sowing them too deep uh, might be involved because each uh, seed is a capsule uh, that contains several tiny seeds so sow them really shallow perhaps um, half the width of your finger um, and uh, firm them in and try watering the soil before sowing moist soil is important because uh, the rainbow chard are a member of the beetroot family and these seeds tend to have an inhibitor of germination that can be washed out so if they sit in dry soil the inhibitor won't be washed out and the seed won't germinate so sow them in moist soil and uh, don't let the soil dry out and, until they emerge so i can only suggest trying again the seed is cheap after all um, and uh, it shouldn't be too much of a problem but uh, so i think that you've just had bad luck um, so far and uh, there's every chance that uh, more sowings will be successful in future dennis knowles uh, writes in and he asks uh, about clematis armandii uh, he says i read that this is the time of year to prune clematis such as armandii uh, my plant is two years old i've never pruned it before how do i do this without damaging the plant rob what do you think I think if the plant is just two years old, I would I would prune it very minimally, if at all. The plant does grow quite vigorously once it's established, and um, it can be trimmed uh, to shape um, after flowering. But um, I certainly wouldn't prune it back hard in the way that you would perhaps one of the Viticella clematis, which you can prune back to just about a foot off the ground in uh, February. Um, these are... Uh, plants which uh, wouldn't tolerate that kind of regular pruning and you probably end up losing it so um, if uh, the plant uh, you know is looking a little untidy probably just light pruning is all that's required and I would say that that probably is the um, the kind of uh, regime that should be taken going forward um, until the plant perhaps does become quite large um, when it will take some renovation once it's uh, really established but that shouldn't really be done more than say five years every five years or so i think um, rob's hit the nail on the head there they although it's a good idea to prune evergreen plants in spring just before growth starts uh, clematis armandii has got a bad reputation for resenting being pruned so i think keeping the pruning to an absolute minimum is uh, is advisable one thing you can do is when with this young plant presumably it hasn't grown very much and you're going to bend down the shoots to to quite low down so you get a good spreading growth from ground level at some stage either now or in future years the opportunity arises to do what's called layering layering is a technical term for when you take a stem give it a slight twist to wound it and then bury the wounded part under a pile of soil you do that at this time of year in uh, late spring and early summer and by the autumn it's rooted so you've got a spare plant and then if you do your heavy renovation pruning and the plant um, does not come back from this pruning at least you've got a replacement already without having to buy another plant the next uh, email is from jane nelson of cardiff and she said i'd like to have more scent in the garden and was thinking about planting a summer flowering jasmine can you recommend me some interesting varieties to try, please? Are there any coloured varieties um, that have a strong scent as well? Mm. Jenny? 
There's lots of lovely jasmines to choose from. If you live in the shelter, in a sheltered part of the country, then you can actually plant the jasmine that you get in the garden centres in the wintertime, which is jasmine polyanthem. Uh, that needs a little bit more warmth than some of the others. Um, it's got beautiful white scented flowers. Its foliage is probably semi evergreen. Uh, if it gets very, if it gets a bit cold, it'll drop some of its foliage. But uh, in in some of central London or in the middle of cities, you'll probably find it. It keeps hold of its foliage, and it's fast growing and vigorous, and will cover a wall or a shed quite happily and uh, will probably need to be thinned each year. It's very enthusiastic and very highly scented. It has little pink buds and you normally buy it, um, you can buy it as an outdoor plant in the garden centres, but uh, in the winter you see it around a hoop normally. That's how you'll buy that one. Uh, there's one called Cornish Cream, which is uh, a little bit hard. I think that's an aficionale type. And uh, Obviously, it's a, it's a creamy coloured one. There is a golden-leaved one, which is really interesting, called Fiona Sunrise. Oh, that's right. And yes. um, it um, comes out almost orange and then sort of fades to, yeah. to yellow. That's the foliage rather than the flower. So that's a particularly interesting one to That to would have. make a nice contrast with some yeah. purple foliage or, or dark green. But they're all very, very highly yeah. scented. So there's... There's a one. nice one called Stephanensi as well, mm-hmm. a hybrid, which is pink. Um, and um, the new foliage of that is actually pink as well. So, you know, it, again, it comes out, uh, you know, changing its foliage over time, which is very interesting. They're quite widely available they as are, well. Yeah, all of those are. Uh, nice sunny spot, and mm. there you are. Yeah. And then Carter has emailed in of a question about their daffodils. They say, my daffodils flowered very poorly this year. Is there any way I can rejuvenate them or should I just dig them up and buy new bulbs for next year? One of the first things in these cases is to decide whether a pest called a narcissus fly is involved. Anna, what should they look for to detect the presence of a narcissus fly? So if you dig up the bulbs and take a look, um, you're looking out for larvae, maggot larvae, um, and there are two types of narcissus fly, um, one which feeds, is a secondary pest and feeds after the damage um, done by the first one. So if you decide um, which one you have based on their size. Unless you're a trained entomologist, um, you can't really tell them apart from other flies, but they're usually wombling their way round your narcissus borders in late summer. And when the plants um, die back, they lay their eggs at the top of the um, hole left by the leaves and they go down and do evil things in the bulbs, maggots, as Anna said. But um, what they tend to do is they tend to eat out the uh, growing tip. So if you've got narcissus fly, you find not only do you have no flowers, um, but you also have lots of very um, fine grassy foliage. And under those circumstances, uh, it's probably better to read to replace the bulbs because they've been so badly injured it'll take some years before they come up to flowering size and to deter the fly uh, run your rake over the bed or the planting wherever you, as soon as the foliage dies back to fill in the holes there's no pesticides unfortunately so once you've um, found or ruled out the presence of narcissus fly um, what else could you do to to get them to flower again rob well, um, it's one of the things to think about is is actually how long the pl- the bulbs have actually been planted. Um, if they were only planted, say, a year or so ago, um, 
the reason they're not flowering this year, apart from possibly the um, uh, Narcissus fly, is perhaps they were planted in too shady a spot, um, which would have caused the bulbs to receive too little light. Um, and so consequently, they didn't build themselves up sufficiently in order to produce flowers for this year. Uh, another um, thing to think about is how deeply the, the, the bulbs were planted. If they were planted, you know, with their, no their noses of, of, the, of the bulb, the top of the bulb, virtually at the surface of the soil, then this is too shallow. They need to be planted about two and a half times the depth of the bulb. Um, so if the bulb is, is five centimetres or two inches um, high, then it needs to be planted around um, uh, six and a half centimetres or seven centimetres deep, which is about two and a half inches, three inches. And that will enable them to produce the flowers for next year. Another reason, <laughs> another reason why they might not be flowering too happily is because they've got too dry in the summer. Uh, uh, so actually too too wet in the winter may cause them to rot off but being too dry in the summer they really really dislike so if you've got daffodils growing next to a leylandii hedge for example uh, where the hedge has drunk all the water then uh, that perhaps isn't the best place to plant the daffodils however if you do move them then you can turn the situation around and uh, if they get enough moisture during the summer they will start to flower again so there's no need to actually throw those daffodil bulbs away that's probably one of the main reasons why they, they don't flower. And I think some species, or no, no, not necessarily species, some cultivars are more susceptible to not flowering if they get a little bit dry. They're a little bit more finicky than others. And if you are going to move them, just to add, it's probably a good idea to wait until the foliage just begins to go yellow um, before digging them up, because that is an indication that uh, the bulb growth cycle is finished and so you can sort of be pretty sure that it's reached its maximum size uh, before you lift it. If you lift it too early there is a risk that it would actually be underdeveloped and with the root disturbance that could prevent it from um, building the bulb up to its optimum size. And too late you don't know where they are. And too late you don't know where they are absolutely. Uh, Fiona Gordon from Colchester emails in and says um, I have three large viburnum bushes in my front garden last year they were ravaged by what a neighbor thought were viburnum beetle how can i prevent them from returning and doing the same again this year um how do you spot viburnum beetle and and their eggs and larvae and you know, i suppose you get lots of questions on this one it's being a popular shrub yeah this is a very common question um and viburnum beetle it's quite likely that has what is what has caused the problem um they cause um, a lacing effect on the leaves um which can be quite noticeable um and um, the leaves can sort of brown due to this defoliation um, and also produce um quite a pungent smell as well um maybe a bit later in the summer Unfortunately, there's not a great deal you can do. Um, depending on the size of your viburnum plant, um, you could spray. When would you say is the best time to spray, Guy, against viburnum? Well, um, you usually start to see the little tiny larvae about the size of a, a pinhead round about late April. So um, as soon as you see them, uh, that's the time to treat because the bigger they get, the more difficult they are to kill yeah so looking out for damage really and as soon as you can see the damage then perhaps spraying um but if 
the um, viburnum is too big to get good coverage on the undersides of the leaves and um, then really it's going to have to be something you're going to have to tolerate I'm afraid some mm. damage but luckily it's only two about well there's just a couple of the viburnums mm. that are susceptible to it so it's viburnum tinus uh, which is the one that flowers in the winter through to early spring with lovely white flowers and the other one is uh, viburnum opulus which is the big round balls, the sort of uh, Opulus roseum, uh, that one's called. But there's plenty of other viburnums to choose from that luckily don't get affected by the viburnum beetle. And have wonderful scent as yeah. well. Barry Trim from Derby um, asks about cucumbers. What's a good variety to grow outdoors? Um, can I train them up a fence? has a small garden, so he'd like to be able to use as much vertical space as he can to grow the vegetables this year. Well, um, outdoor cucumbers are actually very easy to grow. Uh, the further north you get, the more difficult, but I think there's good success should be had in Derby. Uh, the one that has our award of garden merit is called Market Moor, which is a traditional British uh, ridge cucumber type, but they're quite quite spiky and um, you have, really have to peel them before you can eat them, unlike supermarket cucumbers that are grown in greenhouses. However, Japanese cucumbers, of which uh, Tokyo Slicer is an excellent um, example, uh, have got a, a, a much less spiky skin, and they can be consumed in the same way as a, as a greenhouse cucumber, and they're equally easy to grow as market more. And if you like a pickled cucumbers there's lots of gherkins um, modern ones are f1 hybrids and they form fruits without fertilization which we call parthenocarpic uh, mocus is one that is uh, widely offered so you sow the seed in april or may plant out um, and then sometimes uh, if your cropping goes well it's worth making a second sowing in july for some late cucumbers and yes you most certainly can train them up a fence or a wigwam or a stick um whatever suits your purpose and uh, they're an excellent way of making use of uh, vertical space oh we've got a question here from rose uh Demer in essex who says uh, i'd like to introduce some summer color into my small garden it's a terrace it's south facing with two long raised bed borders which are currently empty can you suggest some perennials that are easy to care for and will bring color in the summer months please well if it's sunny there's such a lot of things you can choose. Rob, where should we start? I think I'd like to start on the daisy family. Um, you know, they're, they're really good doers, very easy to grow, um, usually come back each year. Some of the best um, uh, plants to use would be um, uh, the rudbeckias, I think, which are uh, usually in a, a, a sort of a, a yellow, often having a raised uh, central area, which is uh, where the pollen is. Um, they're very striking plants, really architectural. Flowers sort of in the late summer um, and um, last pretty much through to, to early autumn. Um, the echinaceas are another uh, daisy uh, family, often called the cone flower, um, because of the raised um, central area where the, uh, the pollen is. Um, and uh, they come in a variety of colours. They've become extremely popular and um, they come come in a variety of colours from white through to magenta and recently there are some e even sunset colours um, on the petals which are proving to be uh, quite uh, popular as well. 
Earlier in the season, um, Anthemis um, is a really good um, lower-growing daisy, literally covered in flowers, um, and that can range from from white through to cream and yellow, um, and even into magenta. I definitely have some penstemons in there because they come with such a wide range of colours: whites, reds, purples, even even towards the blues. Uh, and salvias as well because there's a salvia for every height that you require starting at about um, um, about 15 centimetres going up to 60 centimetres which is two foot uh, maybe even more actually up to three foot so around the 90 centimetre mark Uh, they're all in the blue blue indigo colour range Um, the salvias that I've got in mind for example one called caradonna uh, and a shorter one is maynite uh, so they're quite long flowering and even when the original flower spike starts to fade they're still quite architectural to look at they have a slight sort of reddish tint as, as the flowers fade that you're left with the um, with the sort of sepals and uh, they're very ornamental um, and then there's the classics like flocks uh, and veronicastrum is a very nice one so it contrasts very nicely with the daisy flowers it's it's nice to have a mixture of flower forms so that you've got the, the daisy shapes and then you've got spires as well and perhaps even sort of round ball shape. So things like echinops, uh, which are quite a vivid blue with silver foliage. So it's all about contrast, really. And luckily, all the things that we've spoken about are very appealing to insects, aren't they, Anna? Yeah, all of those um, are absolutely great for pollinators such as um, honeybees um, and butterflies. So they're a great way to attract some more wildlife to your garden. The RHS Advice Team. RHS members also get free entry to all four RHS gardens, plus the opportunity to buy priority tickets to RHS flower shows and events. You can also find out more about the benefits of becoming a member on our website, rhs.org.uk slash join. Here are some of the attractions and events coming up in the next few weeks. If you've ever been impressed by the spectacular streamside plantings at Harlow Carr and wondered how to achieve something similar in your own garden, then why not join us for a guided walk and workshop on the 6th of June? Booking is essential and discounted places are available for RHS members. If you're longing to grow and eat your own garden produce, then join us at Hyde Hall on the 14th of May for a practical workshop starting from scratch which will show you how to raise plants from seed, plus planting techniques and aftercare for a wide range of fruit and vegetables. RHS members, £40, non-members, £50. Find out what you can do to attract and help bees in your garden this year at RHS Garden Rosemore. This free event runs in the Plant Centre on both afternoons of the weekend of the 28th to the 29th of May. Join us at Wisley on the 3rd of June for growing berries, currants and soft fruits. Learn how to get the taste of summer in your garden from strawberries, blueberries, raspberries and more. This session will cover different soft fruits and their care, planting, soils, siting, training, pruning and maintenance. Booking is essential and discounted places are available for RHS members. Full details of all events and more are on our website. The number of people becoming interested in growing fruit and vegetables in the UK continues to increase year after year. 
There are so many benefits of growing your own. The taste of freshly pricked crops, the satisfaction of watching them ripen, control over what chemicals are used in cultivation, financial benefits and the pleasure of serving a meal you've produced from plot to plate. One of the schemes the RHS have set up to help more people learn to grow fruit and vegetables is the Community Allotment Programme. Now in its second year, this gives successful applicants of all ages and backgrounds a chance to learn horticultural techniques from RHS experts. Students are given monthly tutorials, mentoring and a plot here in the garden at Wisley to apply and practice their skills, spending a year growing veg in a community allotment. We spoke to course coordinator Amy Adams and some of this year's community allotmenteers to find out more about the training programme. Hello, I'm Amy Adams. I am the Courses and Workshops Coordinator at RHS Garden Widsley. The Community Allotment Project is now entering into its second year at RHS Widsley. Um, so we began in 2015 with a group of 12 community allotmenteers who we recruited from the local community who each have something that they are either already contributing or would like to give back to their local community. So for example, we have some uh, retired teachers, we have some people who already work with children and want to continue to share their knowledge with children. Um, we have some people who might foster children already and just be helping one or two individuals on a more one-to-one -one basis. But each person that is either doing something great or wants to give something great back to the community and that has got no experience of growing vegetables so they are coming for a season's growing on an allotment plot within the garden um, tutored um, by our RHS experts once a month on master classes and then every week in question and answer sessions basically to learn how to grow vegetables. So when the allotmenteers apply to the project um, they might mention in their application that they want to go to the school that they might have previously worked with or where their children attend um, and they will explain the way that they want to go and work back there to share the knowledge that they gain from the project here. It's like a chain of sharing knowledge so it begins at Wisley with our experts sharing their expertise and knowledge to others that want to then go and pass it on afterwards. Last year's group of community allotmenteers were very successful in the vegetables that they grew, some crops more than others. Uh, runner beans um, they had coming out of their ears, the potatoes they were just absolutely delighted with, um, they said they tasted delicious and they couldn't believe how many they dug up out of the ground. Courgettes again, they had an enormous number of courgettes. Um, sweet corn the, some people their sweet corn uh, was got at by badgers unfortunately but the people uh, the people who managed to evade the badgers were very pleased with their sweet corn as well which was such a shame because the badgers waited until that very last moment to get there but um, we have improved our fencing and the badgers will not get the sweet corn this year. My name's Kate Bradford, I live in Hazelmere, I very recently took semi-retirement which is why the timing of this has been absolutely wonderful because I've got time to come down midweek and do all the things that life of full-time work doesn't allow you to do um, and I was particularly interested because I'm a really keen flower and shrub gardener but a complete veg novice so the chance to actually learn and garden in a place like Wisley itself is just a real, real treat. So um, I was delighted when I saw, saw the ad and applied and got the place. I'm Stephen Buse, I'm a, a GP uh, and I've always had an interest in gardening um, but thus far not any kind of guidance in gardening so I just kind of muddled my way through and this was an opportunity to um, gain some experience from professionals 
about uh, guidance in increasing yields of vegetable growing uh, and perhaps growing some things that I'd not grown before. Well, we have a long list. We're all sharing the same list, but it's completely up to us what proportions we grow um, veg in. I think there are about 14 or 15 Yeah, that's right, 14 varieties. The 15th is our wild card, where we're given free reign to try and grow a crop of our choosing. Mine is coriander, which I thought was good for many reasons. Firstly, the leaf is nice. Flowers too, but also then the seeds, hopefully, at the end of the season. And I've chosen rhubarb chard because I absolutely adore anything that's like spinach, chard or whatever. Never actually grown rhubarb chard before. Um, And I've chosen it because it has these glorious pink stems and then the green leaf. Mm. So it's absolutely delicious. Will hopefully look fabulous and give a bit of colour contrast in the allotment. And it's one of those crops that you cut and it comes again and again and again. So it sort of produces, it's got a very high yield, which is good too. So hopefully it will keep me going through the summer. Do you think you can actually taste the difference between spinach and that? I will tell you at the end of the year. (laughs) We can all have a little blind taste test when we come and do barbecues down here and eat our produce together. Jim, who's the chap who runs this, you know, will take us for a masterclass at the beginning of each session, uh, once each month. And it's just little tips that he gives you, you know. So I guess because I've tried to grow vegetables myself before, I have a good understanding of what kind of works and what doesn't. But when you hear someone like Jim somehow succinctly uh, condensed down 40 years of growing experience into a sentence or two, you just think, oh, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's also the opportunity to ask questions. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're just quizzing him the whole time. So you're sort of learning and then you're just testing out things that you've heard, things that have gone wrong at home. Um, It's just a wonderful way to pack in a huge amount of information and actually see things being demonstrated in front of your eyes as well because it's easier if things go in if you actually see somebody showing you how to plant something or we've been doing wigwam tying this morning Mm -hmm. and none of us, I think, are quite up to speed on our different types of knots because it's been a while since we did those. But, um, it, you know, it re- really is brought to life actually seeing an expert there on his demo plot yeah. showing us how to do things. Quite right. Applications for the Community Allotment Project 2017 will open in September of this year um, and information will be on the website and the application opening will coincide with the Wizzy Flower Show. So it will be at the beginning of September and we will be promoting what we have achieved this year and sharing the successes of this year's allotmenteers. You can find more information about the RHS Community Allotment Programme and how to apply for a place on next year's course at rhs.org.uk slash allotments. So that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight when we go behind the scenes at this year's RHS Chelsea Flower Show. Until then, remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS. For now, from me, Guy Barter, and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. 
I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.